The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. So you know, because you're a listener to this show, that this show is primarily built around narratives. During the regular season, every game has a story, sometimes multiple stories that come out. And those have a tendency to percolate. After the game on Sunday, they kind of come to a head on Wednesday. I address them on Thursday, and then I move on. And that's pretty much how this show has operated since its inception. But the funny thing is that sometimes I'll get done with a game on Sunday afternoon and go, I don't know what I'm going to talk about on Thursday. I'll be kind of scouring social media because that's basically the purpose for me and to post pictures of dogs and food and make funny memes. But I'll be trying to figure out what the story is. What is it that people want to talk about? And if not, I'll be like, okay, fine. Well, this is what I want to talk about. So you're going to listen. But I will occasionally come to the end of Sunday night and go, "Uh oh, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And then Tuesday will come around. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And then Wednesday will come around and I'll have, you know, one page of notes, which is not nearly enough for a show like this. Today is one of those days where I have way too many notes. We're going to do our best to get through everything. I have a ton of emails to get to as well. I have no clue if I will be able to get to all of the things I want to talk about and also emails. No idea. So we'll do our best and we'll just see where the wind takes us. So the Buffalo Bills have made the playoffs four out of the last five seasons under Sean McDermott. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. 
You've heard that phrase from me on this podcast before. Applies in fantasy football, specifically dynasty fantasy football, which, by the way, I, I won the championship last week against Nate Geary. So I am the two-time back-to-back reigning champion of the Dynasty League. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. It's true in real football, too. The football that's actually played on fields and not inside smartphone applications. The idea that this is the year or Super Bowl or bust, that'll never really be a thing. There are certain moments like Ben Roethlisberger's last season, where you know this is the end. But very rarely is that season Super Bowl or bust. Because the Steelers were never serious Super Bowl contenders. That was never going to happen. And so because of that, I thought it was odd the way that they approached their final offseason of Ben Roethlisberger. They drafted a running back in the first round. They brought Big Ben back. It was almost like they were ready for one last hurrah but you weren't going to win a Super Bowl in 2021 slash 2022 with Ben Roethlisberger and the 2021 slash 2022 Pittsburgh Steelers. So I just thought that was weird. So even in that moment where you had a scenario and it was a bust potential, the opposite of that wasn't Super Bowl. So it was just kind of a one last hurrah, but it still wasn't Super Bowl or bust. This year... A lot of people thought Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams might be gone from Green Bay next year. So this year it's Super Bowl or bust. And now there's some rumors, whispers starting to percolate that maybe that's not true. Maybe they'll both be back next year. So I probably shouldn't have said never because absolutes are not a thing. However, I should absolutely say very, very rarely is Super Bowl or bust really a thing. So I think that it's one of the narratives that we run into in the offseason where people will use it as a rallying cry or something to get hyped, but it's very, very rarely an actual thing. There's just too much luck involved. And one of the things that Sean McDermott has consistently done over his tenure with the Buffalo Bills is he's given them a chance to make a run in the playoffs. And this is not a Marvin Lewis thing who just couldn't win a game against really tough competition late in the year. This is not a scenario like that. The Bills were in the AFC Championship last year. So for me, listen, we talked a couple weeks ago that there's very reasonable criticism to be lobbed at Sean McDermott. But don't let the fact that he's not perfect convince you into thinking he's not very good. Don't let the fact that he's not perfect convince you to the fact that he's bad because we need to be comfortable living with imperfect coaches, imperfect quarterbacks and imperfect general managers. The three main components of a team, the three overly scrutinized parts of the team have to be championship quality. And that's broader than you think championship quality quarterback play is broader than you think. Championship quality head coach, broader than you think. Championship quality GM, broader than you think. And all three of those things are the case for the Buffalo Bills in 2021 and moving forward. So we can admit that Sean McDermott's got flaws. We can admit that Josh Allen's got flaws. 
Although we're less likely to because of our affection for him. We can admit that Brandon Bean's got flaws. But don't let the flaws distract you from the fact that they are still indeed players and coaches and GMs that you can win a championship with. Be as good as you can for as long as you can. Hope you get lucky. One of the things that's funny about regular seasons is narratives ebb and flow. And some of the narratives that we look back on now, we kind of chuckle. Do you remember when the Bills were soft? Do you remember when they weren't able to respond to adversity? Do you remember the first couple weeks of this year where Josh Allen didn't come out strong and there was a Josh Allen can't play in front of crowds narrative? You remember that one? It was a fluke in 2020. Remember that one? These things ebb and flow. The vast majority of the time, the passage of time will reveal these narratives to be silly. The Bills lost the turnover margin against the last team they played by three and had the best thing they do impacted by the snow and still won by 14 points, which is way larger than the average margin of victory in the NFL in 2021. That's a good team. They're a good team. We knew this. We already knew this. We always knew this. Even if they lose against the Jets, they're still a good team. If they go to the playoffs and they win a game and they get bounced in the divisional round, they're still a good team. But the length of time between games in the NFL is so long that narratives form and have an opportunity to kind of take on their own life. And if not quickly discussed, quickly digested, quickly affirmed, or put a pin in, or dismissed, they will stick. There are still people out there who think Deion Dawkins is having a bad season because the fact that he didn't play well on the final snap against the Tennessee Titans and had two games early in the year where he didn't play well has stuck with them and they never got it out. It's so important in the NFL to not let these narratives stick unless they're worthy of sticking. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what this point is about. It's one of the reasons why this show even exists is to try to get ahead of them. Okay, here are the storylines. Are they legit? Is there something to this, Bruce? Should we put a pin in it? Come back to later? Remember three games is a trend from earlier this year, specifically when it comes to Josh Allen? We're not going to panic because three games is a trend. We didn't lose our marbles. Is this a affirmation? Is it dismissal? Or is it a let's hold kind of conversation? But some of these narratives that we had pop up and ebb and flow over the course of the year, now we look back and they look silly. One of the things I'm going to ask of my listeners after this year is over is I'm going to ask you to send me emails and I'm going to ask you to tell me what you think you've learned this year. What have you learned about the way to digest football, about your fandom? What have you learned? And we're going to do a pod on them. And we're going to chat about them. Not necessarily what did you learn about the team. What did you learn about football? What did you learn about the way you digest the product? Things like that. Because now is a good time to reflect on that. And I thought now would be a good time to reflect on some of the funny narratives. I know we did a little bit of that last week. But how nice is it? 
to have a multi-dimensional quarterback for days like the Buffalo Bills just had against the Atlanta Falcons. How nice is it to have an adapting offensive coordinator? Came out, throw, 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 throw. Passing game stopped working. We said, okay, that's fine. We'll just go to the ground game. We'll use Allen as a runner. We'll run Devin Singletary over 20 times. Get a 100-yard game. Traits give you options. And Josh Allen, whoever the play caller is next year, whether it's Brian Dable or whether he leaves to be a head coach somewhere else, whoever that play caller is, has tons of options and would probably love to coach Josh Allen because you have all sorts of things at your disposal. And being able to pivot is one of the reasons why multifaceted quarterbacks are so important in today's NFL because defenses are good. Defenses are really good. Everyone thinks that because offense is scoring more and more points than they ever have, it's because defenses are worse. And that's not necessarily true. I will say that the rules have overwhelmingly favored offense recently, but defenses are very good and you need to be constantly evolving to be able to beat them. And the more traits you have, specifically at the quarterback position, the more things you can do. It's one of the reasons why you've seen toolsy quarterbacks like Trey Lance get taken in the top five. Offensive coordinators want to be able to tackle whatever it is they have to deal with. And if you have Josh Allen, you can. Now, the passer rating will tell you that it was his worst day of his career. It wasn't, which is why we should talk about using metrics in a vacuum. One metric in a vacuum in one game. The Green Bay game from Allen's rookie year was markedly worse than the Falcons game was this past Sunday. Markedly worse. Now, Allen did not have a good day throwing the ball. Even if those tipped passes would have fallen incomplete, he still wouldn't have had a good day throwing the ball. But he could pivot. And it certainly wasn't his worst day throwing the ball. It only looks like that if all you're looking for is passer rating. I think it's a great opportunity to point out that using things in composite, using multiple things, preferably balanced against themselves, maybe perhaps a composite that shares a name with a very popular liquid-based food. Maybe that would be helpful in scenarios like this. But I thought it was a good opportunity to point out that passer rating in a vacuum for a game is not a good measure of how well he played. Now, I don't think he played overly well in the passing game, but passer rating in a vacuum is not a good example of that. How about Ed Oliver and Harrison Phillips, ladies and gentlemen, becoming two disruptive players on the inside? And I think that one of the things that we are talking about is how the value of a good one tech next to Ed Oliver has helped him take off. One of the big storylines coming into this year was if we can get reasonable or better one tech play next to Ed Oliver, he could break out. I have a twist for you. The double teams on Ed Oliver is one of the things that's helping Harrison Phillips break out. Ed Oliver is one of the most highly double teamed defensive tackles in football. He's helping Harrison Phillips break out. And that's the next point. The next thing I want to talk about is symbiotic relationships. 
I still haven't decided what I'm going to name this podcast, but it might be a Venom or Spider-Man reference because of the concept of symbiotic relationships. Hashtag nerd. But those defensive tackles have symbiotic relationships. The play of one affects the other. But we only really see symbiotic relationships certain ways in football. I'll give you a great example. We know that offensive line play affects how well a running back can play. We know it intrinsically. Man, it's not the running backs, it's the line. Who who could possibly run with holes like that? We know that. But when you apply the exact same thing on the inverse side of the ball, we forget about it immediately. Defensive line has a symbiotic relationship with linebacker play. The same way that offensive line has a symbiotic relationship with running back play. But we don't think about it that way. How Ed Oliver and Harrison Phillips are playing affects Tremaine Edmonds just as much as the way Mitch Morse, Ryan Bates, and Daryl Williams are playing affects Devin Singletary. We know it on the offensive line. We completely forget about it when it comes time to talk about defensive line and linebacker play. Tremaine Edmonds has to play off of Ed Oliver and Harrison Phillips the same way that Devin Singletary has to read blocks in front of him. Those things are related. And we understand that good one-tech play will help Ed Oliver, but we don't think about that Ed Oliver will help one-tech play. We only see symbiotic relationships one way in football. We don't see them inversely the way that we should. But at the same time, we say things like, well, it's the ultimate team sport. It is, which means there are symbiotic relationships everywhere on the field, every snap. Corners and safeties, offensive line and running backs, defensive line and linebackers. All of these places have symbiotic relationships. I love analytics. You know this. I enjoy the ability to measure things that can and should be measured. But you got to know what you're looking at when you watch football to know how one person impacts another. If Ed Oliver cuts across to an A gap and then decides to spin back around to the B gap and Tremaine Edmonds is standing behind him going, which way are you going, dude? That puts Tremaine Edmonds in a little bit of a bind. Because it's almost like trying to walk past your spouse in the hallway where you you both go left and then you both go right. And you're like, okay, oh, this is funny. And one of you makes a little joke about, oh, we're doing a little dance. Oh yeah. And you always think it's really funny, but it's like really lame. But I do it anyway because I've been married a long time and I'll take all the laughs I can get. It's the same way with linebackers and defensive line play. And so Ed Oliver playing well affects Harrison Phillips. Qualitatively, the way he plays not good or bad, but just stylistically affects the people behind him too. And so I want us to understand that football is absolutely the ultimate team sport. 100%. And so while it's great to measure people, we should do that. We should try our best. And players that can be isolated as best they can, we should try and do that. It's valuable. But we know it's the ultimate team sport, but we don't apply that knowledge to all the relationships. We only apply it to some of them. And I think it's as a collective when it comes to football fandom, we're getting there. We live in an era where football fans are more educated than they have ever been. Football fans have never been smarter, 
as a whole than they are right now. And we got to keep moving forward as a fan base. We got to keep moving forward as fans of football to the point now where we're at a spot as a general community where we accept the symbiotic relationships that exist not just between offensive line and running back, but also between defensive line and linebackers and corners and safeties. That's the final frontier. That's the next step for football fandom is the acknowledgement of symbiotic relationships in areas where we currently do not recognize them. Speaking of Tremaine Edmonds, I want to talk about busts. Not because I think Tremaine Edmonds is a bust, because I think it's funny that we talk about it that way. You see, when someone is a free agent bust, we base that concept almost solely on inability to live up to their contract. It's very, very difficult for someone who signs a one-year, $2 million contract to ever be labeled as a free agent bust, regardless of how they play. Because it's a value proposition. What you give versus what you get. And specifically, it's about money. Did they live up to their contract? But with draft busts, we don't do that anymore. When someone is a draft bust, we no longer use money as the example for why they're a bust. Instead, all of a sudden, we use opportunity cost. Well, we could have had this guy. We could have drafted that guy instead. And that's what makes someone a bust. Not whether or not they're good, whether or not feasibly you think your team could have drafted someone else. But that same rule applies in free agency, does it not? In 2019, the Buffalo Bills signed wide receiver John Brown to a three-year, $27 million contract. The New York Giants signed receiver Golden Tate to a four-year, $37.5 million contract. So not super far off when it comes to average annual value. But when you look back at the Giants scenario and they go, oh, that was was a free agent bust for the Giants. They don't say we could have had John Brown. They don't say we could have had Cole Beasley. They say he didn't live up to his contract. So we care about opportunity cost too much when it comes to the draft and not enough when it comes to free agency, which I think is insane because both things apply in both scenarios. Let's go back to Tremaine Emmons. Tremaine Emmons' rookie contract is four years, $12.659 million. A little over $3 million a year. Has Tremaine Emmons been worth a little over $3 million a year? Unquestionably. Now, he's going to be a fifth-year option player, which means the Bills essentially signed him to a one-year, $12.716 million fully guaranteed deal for next year. That's a completely separate discussion. Is he worth that? Well, that's two completely separate discussions because it's two completely separate contracts. Was he worth the initial contract? I think that's pretty obvious he was worth the initial contract. Did he perform up to snuff based on that initial contract? Yeah, absolutely did. We can have a completely different discussion about 12.716 fully guaranteed for 2022. And then we can have a separate discussion about opportunity cost. But it's not just one of those factors. It's not either the contract or the opportunity cost. It's both. It should be both with free agents in the same way that it should be both with draft picks. Because that's the cost. The cost is 
the money you gave them, which come away from your salary cap, which is a limited resource. And then the draft pick you gave them, which is a limited resource. And then for a free agent signing, it's the contract you gave them, which comes away from your cap, which is a limited resource. And then the opportunity cost of not signing a different player at that same position to fill that same spot. So in both cases, there's a contractual cost, a cap cost, and an opportunity cost. Now, we can argue about the weighting of those things and how they're weighted differently, but they exist in both scenarios. They exist with your draft picks, and they exist with your free agent signings as well. So I just thought that was interesting. As we're discussing bad value, good value, bust, things like that, it seems like for free agents, we only talk about the contract. And for draft picks, we only talk about the opportunity cost. But there's opportunity cost in both scenarios, and there's a contract in both scenarios. I recognize that's more of a team-building discussion, probably better for this offseason. We're probably going to have it again this offseason, but I thought that was interesting. Plurality pie, Buffalo Bills, Atlanta Falcons. Harrison Phillips, 19%, continues his strong play. Ed Oliver, 17%. Devin Singletary, the newly deemed workhorse running back of the Buffalo Bills, 15%. Sean McDermott, 14%. Stayed aggressive. Stayed aggressive. Brian Dable, 13%. Good job adapting. Mitch Morse, 9%. That's right. Go back, watch Miss Morse. Some of the stuff that Mitch Morse can do in pass protection is not overly common in the NFL. Go back and watch him. It's impressive. Other 13%. Harrison Phillips, 19. Ed Oliver, 17. Devin Singletary, 15. Sean McDermott, 14. Brian Dable, 13. Mitch Morse, 9. Other 13%. Ladies and gentlemen, plurality pie. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. And then we're going to try and get through as many emails as humanly possible. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Andy sent me an email and said, hey, Bruce, I have a few targeted player questions after the win over Atlanta, so I'll get right to it. Number one, based on the last two weeks, has Ryan Bates proved that he's worth extending? If so, where do you see him on the 2022 depth chart and what might his contract look like? Ryan Bates is a restricted free agent next year, which means if the Bills want him back, they can tender him and they'll probably get him back. Free agent tenders for restricted free agents of this type have a tendency to hover around $2 million. I anticipate he will very likely be back this particular season. Last week-ish, you projected a Harrison Phillips extension by using comparable players from other teams. Assuming he continues his current trajectory of nice plus play into the postseason, how does your contract projection change, if at all? Probably not much. Because there would still be a very small sample size of him being that good. So I would doubt it. I would doubt it would change at all. Three, with Trey White out for the season, how does Levi Wallace's performance under the increased workload change his free agent stock with other teams, or does it do nothing? 
Is it likely that he becomes a comp pick casualty in the offseason? Does a multi-year extension seem like a reasonable option? I'm completely fine extending Levi Wallace. As I've mentioned before on this show, Levi Wallace is a reasonable cornerback. I will take all the reasonable cornerbacks I can possibly get for reasonable salaries. So I'm all about extending Levi Wallace. I do not think there'll be a significant market for him. There wasn't this last offseason, and his quality of play isn't markedly better this year than it was last year. I think that the league pretty much knows what Levi Wallace is, and for a lot of parties involved, the best thing for Levi Wallace is to be in Buffalo. Probably the best opportunity for him to get playing time, the best system to fit his skill set, and the best thing for the Bills. So I anticipate there will probably be a re-signing for Levi Wallace in this offseason. Moving along, Nick says, Bruce, thanks for all you do. I have a question. The past two weeks, we have scored to go up and have gone for two both times. The first time against the Patriots, instead of going up 13 with the PAT, we opted for two unsuccessfully. This week, instead of going up six, we opted to try to go up seven, this time successfully. I was against the decision to go for two both times. The reasoning? Both scores were in the second half where possessions are limited. In the Patriots game, we went up by 12 due to a missed two-point conversion. The Patriots then score, cutting our lead to five. If we would have kicked a PAT after a previous score, we would have been up by six. And the big point here is a field goal puts us up nine and extends the game to two possessions when possessions are limited. Luckily, Josh Allen did Josh Allen thing, so it's a moot point. Similarly, against the Falcons, we score to put us up five and a PAT puts us up six. We go for two, get it, and go up eight. If we wouldn't have succeeded, we need a touchdown on the next drive instead of field goal to go up two possessions. All right, let me stop you right there. So we scored to go up five. A PAT puts us up six. We go for two. A, that makes us up seven, not eight. So that that's a quick little fix there. He says, ultimately, it didn't matter, and we won both games, but I'm curious to know if statistics back up the decision. So I don't have my own particular win probability model when it comes to these things. So there's many different win probability models that you can utilize. Uh, ben Baldwin has one. ESPN has their own win probability model. Um, I think Football Outsiders has their own as well. And each one of them is based on win probabilities, based on the information that they have in regards to scores with specific times left in games with possessions. So for me, I had no problem with either one of them. But I'm really not super helpful here because I don't have my own win probability model that I use. And I probably will never have my own win probability model that I use. I look at all of theirs combined when I'm kind of looking at it. Each team who has an analytics person typically has their own win probability model as well. So I had no problem with either one of them. I know why they did it. And it was for the same reason that you said. So the first time against the Patriots, instead of going up 13 with a PAT, they opted to go for two right? They wanted to be up to the point where you would have to score two touchdowns, not a touchdown and a field goal. Because you're right, possessions matter a lot. But in addition, forcing them to have to score touchdowns is very, very different than field goals. It's a lot harder to get a game-winning touchdown than it is to get a game-winning field goal. So if you have a chance to go up 13 with a PAT or 14 with a two-point conversion, a lot of people are saying, listen, I want to put the pressure on them to have to score touchdowns to win this game rather than be able to tie it with a field goal to send me to overtime and extend the game. So I had no problem with either one of them. 
I can understand why somebody else might, but I do not have a particular win probability model to back me up. Jamie says, morning, Bruce. It's 8 a.m. in the morning. The Bills have their playoff space and McDermott is proving his doubters wrong again. I've been meaning to resend this to you for a few weeks during the Bills' trials and tribulations over the last couple of months. To me, this week is a perfect week to look back on the season. You know what? I thought so too. That's the conversation early in the pod. Getting to the playoffs is a sign of a good team. In the playoffs, you're in the hands of Lady Luck. Bad matchups, ref calls, player having a career day, bobbles of balls. They end themselves a season. That's why I'm quite content with the season. We like to talk about sample size. After we find out the results of the playoffs, we tend to be myopic about the team's faults. Looking back at last season, most fans were screaming about a pass rush to close down Mahomes. Very few. We're talking about holes all over the place in the team. Shout out to your needs 2020 and 2021 podcast. So we go back to my email I sent before the season. And the Bills still have the issues that I presented at that time. The offensive line has struggled too much this season. And I would say the group which needs the most investment this offseason is the offensive line. The returns department is still a work in progress. Stevenson had a costly fumble. McKenzie looks to be more useful getting reps on offense. And Diggs and his chicken wings may be adding another weapon this offseason in the department. You may have noticed that Stephon Diggs was getting chicken wings to pending free agent running back and Falcons player Cordero Patterson. The COVID testing issue has raised its ugly head and several times this season, but with the recent changes in guidelines, the Bills haven't been too badly affected. So one thing I assume this team is built on, particularly behind the scenes, is loyalty. You can see it everywhere. Bean is loyal to the players he's had back in Carolina and McDermott always has his players' backs. Now, some of those players this season have repaid their loyalty, Wallace and Phillips, for sure, are definitely players who've really stepped up when needed this season, get those players resigned. However, are they loyal to a fault? Personally, this offseason, the B. McDermott need to have some conversations with the players. Some management favorites need to be moved on from, and some need to be restructured. As the Book of Bruce says, don't resign meh players. And there are a few players who can be easily cut who have been meh this season. So, in regards to being loyal to a fault, Loyalty is a weird thing in leadership because sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, but you don't really know until it happens. So loyalty is one of those things that's a character trait, not necessarily a character flaw. We've talked about this on this podcast before, but a character trait is something that has intrinsically positive sides and intrinsically negative sides. A character flaw is just straight negative. There's nothing but negatives there. And a lot of times we misconstrue character traits as character flaws. Loyalty is a character trait. It has positives to it. It has negatives to it. But you can't really cut out the negatives without also cutting out the positives. Now, you can be more discerning. So discernment on who to be loyal to. But sometimes you're just not going to know until the investment is made emotionally. So I do recognize that Sean McDermott is loyal, perhaps to a fault, with specific players. I get it. I do. But sometimes they repay you. You know who else Sean McDermott was loyal to for a really long time? Josh Allen. Not a lot of teams don't start panicking after two full years and their quarterback's not 
really good because as we've mentioned on the spot before, 2019 Josh Allen was not really good. He was eh. But they knew what they were getting into. And they consistently draft players like Ed Oliver and Dawson Knox and Josh Allen, Jermaine Evans, these freaks who have the right mental makeup and they think, I'm going to give this guy time. I know he has all the tools. He's going to put it together. So the entire organization is built around this concept that you draft these ridiculous freaks and you give them time to develop. This particular season, Devin Singletary having a really good season, third year. Ed Oliver, really good season, third year. Dawson Knox, really good season, third year. So sometimes the loyalty is repaid. Other times, players like Vernon Butler, I still think there's something there, guys. I think there's something there. I really think there's something there with Vernon Butler. So they signed him to a contract, even though they've seen him before in Carolina. And he was floating around the B word pretty strongly before he had sort of a fluky sack season before he became a Buffalo Bill. They thought maybe there was something there with Vernon Butler. There wasn't. It was misplaced loyalty. But I don't think you can necessarily get one without the other. Because you don't know if the loyalty is going to be paid off until later on. So I recognize it's a thing. I don't really know what else you can do aside from just asking a little bit more discernment. Because you can't get the loyalty with the good stuff and then lose the loyalty with the bad stuff. Jesse says, hey, Bruce, over the past few weeks, I've seen a lot of Tremaine criticism that doesn't match my perception of his play. However, I can't say I completely understand how to evaluate him. On one hand, he leads the team in tackles, missing fewer than most defenders across the NFL and limiting yardage better than most. On the other, he fares the worst of starting Bills defenders and limiting QB passer rating and completion percentage, and his 2021 PFF marks are below average. Which metrics should I be examining? Metrics aside, I can't say I have a good frame of reference for him. Can you help us understand Edmonds' job in the Bills' version of the nickel, other than him being the quarterback of the defense? How does Edmonds' role differ from that of Milano? Maybe understanding the difference will more clearly elucidate the specific role of Edmonds and help us evaluate him better. Please help us, Bruce. I sense that most of Bills' Twitter is just as lost as me when it comes to Tremaine, even if they pretend they understand. Linebacker metrics are hard. Let's start with that. There are some positions that are far more difficult to evaluate using metrics. Trust me, I've tried. I'm not saying that nothing is valuable. I'm saying linebacker play is really hard. It's one of the more difficult positions to learn to evaluate appropriately because of how dependent it is and how much understanding is necessary when it comes to role and what they were asked to do on a play. I spent a lot of this past offseason learning about linebacker play. Personally, I have a goal when it comes to my football knowledge every offseason. And I say, you know what? I'm going to read a book on this. I'm going to watch a lot of videos on this. I'm going to do something to evaluate myself, humble and hungry, hashtag rise and grind, to get better. For me in 2021, it was linebacker play. So I don't think that there's an easy answer when it comes to metrics. And I wish there was a better answer for you. I will say when it comes to Milano and Edmonds, the answer is, very little. Listen to Lorenzo Alexander talk about the Bills when they run out of nickel and they roll out two linebackers. The responsibilities are basically play-based. 
And it's really not a scenario where Edmonds and Milano have overwhelmingly different job responsibilities. Now, they could have different responsibilities on a play based on specific who's on the strong side, who's on the weak side. And this weird percolating narrative that starts to pop up that we should move Tremaine Edmonds as an outside linebacker. He is clearly not a Mike. He's a Will or a Sam. No. What? No. That's not how any of this works. Can we please stop saying that? He and Milano have almost identical roles when they're in nickel, and they're in nickel almost all the time. Now, on specific plays, it could be different. But we literally have someone who played in the Sean McDermott defense telling us it's really not that different, folks. Lorenzo Alexander flat out said it. It's not that different between Milano and Edmonds when they're in nickel. But for some reason, we keep trying to make it different so we understand. So I understand it's not a great answer. But I touched a little bit on it earlier today when I talk about playing off of defensive linemen. Sometimes at the beginning of the play, you can freeze frame a play about a quarter second in and you can see the gaps and you can see what Sean McDermott's always talking about when the Bills struggle against the run. He says, well, we didn't have good gap integrity. You can literally draw a line from each of the front seven defenders And go, oh, that's his gap, that's his gap, that's his gap, that's his gap. And then if you press play again, you can start to see how those things shift over time. And if a defensive tackle gets pushed out of his gap entirely, and now all of a sudden Tremaine Evans has to cover two gaps, it makes you a little bit more lax. And mind you, this is coming from someone who is never a crazy high guy on Tremaine Evans. Coming out in the draft, I was not huge on Tremaine Evans. I was fine. I was good with it. When they made the pick, I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. I wish we didn't trade up, but I get it. Most of the NFL was higher on him than I was. Most of the draft community was higher on him than I was. I have always been kind of weird when it comes to super duper freaks that I thought lacked nuance for the position. You remember I was pretty down on DK Metcalf. That turned out to not be a good thing. I was a little bit down on Tremaine Edmonds, a little closer to being right on that one. I still haven't found a way to really thread the needle when it comes to super freaks who I think lack nuances of the position. And so for me to say, you know, if you understand gap exchanges, if you understand run fits, that will help you a little bit with Tremaine Edmonds. For me to say that, this is coming from someone who wasn't really crazy high on Tremaine Edmonds. I was fine with it. I was good with it. But the best thing you can do to understand Edmund's job is learn about run fits. And a podcast is not the great medium for that. That's kind of a visual medium. And as you probably know, you won't be seeing me in front of a whiteboard anytime soon. So that is my encouragement. Number one, metrics for linebackers are tough. Number two, understand codependency and symbiotic relationships. Number three, learn about run fits because specifically the run game is a lot of the reason why people are upset at Edmonds learn about the run game learn about run fits learn about gap exchanges things like that so that's a three-part answer moving along Evan says I don't think I can be absurd enough in this email for how one-sided this game is actually going to look we're getting a scary defense with game wrecking Ed Oliver single-handedly forcing three and outs Tyler Bass with an RPG launcher for a leg. Angry Josh Allen coming in to throw for 350 and five touchdowns. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Maulers on the line. 
with Devin Singletary doing his best to get Bean to extend his contract with a 120-yard day. It's going to be a bloodbath. 55-10 Bills. I'm probably being too conservative because I'm only thinking one pick six off of Zach Wilson. This team is set up to go on a run like the 2019 49ers if Jimmy G was a polar bear with a howitzer for an arm. I'll see you in the playoffs. Josh Allen as a polar bear with a howitzer for an arm is really kind of a nice visual. I'm a huge polar bear guy, by the way. I don't know if you guys know this about me. Maybe I've mentioned on this pod before. Love polar bears. Big fan of polar bears. The fact that they are one of the only animals in the history of mankind who will stalk, hunt, kill, and then eat a human makes them fascinating to me. Because you could make an argument, depending on how you view technology, they're the only animal on the planet that's above us in the food chain, which I think is interesting. So Michael Hurley says, hey, Bruce, currently snowed in here in Virginia and I had something that's been popping through my mind for a couple of weeks and figured now would be a good time to reach out. My question deals with roster building and next steps as a franchise. I feel like many fans and talking heads I follow would agree that IOL, IDL, wide receiver and cornerback fall somewhere in the upper half of the needs for the Bills heading into next year. I know how you feel about corner, so I wanted to add them to fuel that fire. I appreciate that. My question is, would you be on board trading down in the first? If in some way that could net us possible two day two picks or a group of day three picks we could use to get up into day two. Giving up one first round pick for the possibility to have two seconds and two thirds seems like something that would make sense for our current roster. We seem to have talent and or high young picks in key positions. You would expect those people to continue to trend upwards. So finding a way to increase our chances of landing picks in the second or third round makes sense. I also know that Bean doesn't seem to love trading back when he identifies his guy. But I feel at some point with our roster, we need to start filling in missing holes rather than going big game hunting. Does grabbing our possible wide receiver three outweigh getting two IOL to protect Josh long enough to get it to him? Or does drafting a Buffalo nickel make sense if teams can still run up the middle or throw against one of our cornerbacks? I think this would be the best way to hedge against Trey's injury and give him the full time he needs to heal. Sorry for rambling. It's just something I want to hear your thoughts on. So I will make this quick. I absolutely believe in trading down, assuming the right deal is on the table, obviously, at this stage in the development of a team. When cap gets tight because of quarterback, then this is the sweet spot. Right now is when you want to start having good, young, cheap players, as many as humanly possible. So I want all of the top 100 picks I can get. All of them. I'll trade down in the first and then trade up in the third. Trade down in the first, up in the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh. I want all of my picks between 33 and 100. All of them. Ton of them. Give it to me all the time. I'm all for it. At this stage in the team building process. I would not feel like this if the Bills were trying to find the franchise quarterback. I do feel like it now. So that's my personal belief. So for me, yeah, absolutely. I'm down with trading down. Whew. We did it. 45 minutes later. It was too long. I missed the time. I was like, we, we got to do it. We got to get it done. I was already invested. Probably should have saved some for next week. But we did it. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We talked about everything I wanted to talk about. And we got through all the emails. Good for us. Good for us. I'm going to go rest my voice. I'm going to have some green tea with honey. Because that's my preferable nighttime drink. And you know what? If you think that's lame... If you think I'm 900 years old, number one, you might be right. 
But number two, if you decide to make fun of me, I got nothing to say to you except, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.